Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good to see all of you here, as well as guests who have visited us this morning. Praise the Lord for his grace in just allowing us to meet. I'm just again and again reminded that uh, not many churches are meeting in person uh, because of uh, various reasons and shutdowns, and uh, we just have a privilege before the Lord to see one another, to encourage one another, to come and, and worship our God. What a privilege it is, and, and we should not take this for granted. Um, I want to invite you to come and to pray with us as we begin our time in God's Word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we are in great need of your mercy right now for the Spirit to come and to enable our hearts and our minds to perceive the spoken word. We understand that to a natural man, these things are foolishness. They are only spiritually appraised. They are spiritually approved. And so we as those who have your spirit, those who have been changed and transformed, we, we ask that you would do this work of illuminating the word for us so that we would behold Jesus Christ and behold and understand who we are in Christ and what is now our responsibility to show off Christ. And that we would leave this place compelled and encouraged and fired up to live like Jesus. And that is our prayer this morning, for Jesus to be exalted. For we are nothing apart from him. We deserve wrath without him. But because of him, we now stand as your beloved. What a grace. What a reminder for us this morning to continue to love you. Bless us. I pray that you would help me to properly explain your truth, and that Jesus would speak through this word to our hearts, that we would not merely see and hear a preacher, but we would see and hear Christ. Speak to our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, you can also pull out your bulletins that you have and flip them and on the back side you will find an outline for our study here this morning. We're going to look at the end of the sermon's introduction this morning, verses 13 through 16. I mentioned last time that the most familiar passages are often the most dangerous for us as Christians because we don't really listen to them. And today we have another one of these passages, salt and light. I mean, some people will not quote a beatitude, but they will definitely quote, we are the, what, salt. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so I pray that God would give us attentive spirits and, and ready hearts to receive the message of Christ this morning. Last week, we began to look at this most famous sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the first 12 verses, Jesus lays out his blessings that demonstrate the kind of 
quality that God approves. The kind of quality that characterized those who are in his kingdom. And in our study, we concluded last week that the blessed life in Christ's kingdom is expressed by humility towards God and mercy towards men, which oftentimes trigger opposition from the world. Living like Christ and for Christ, Jesus says, will result in conflict with the world. This is where we ended in verses 11 and 12. This morning, Jesus continues in our text with a beautiful description of who we are in him. Not who we need to become, but who we have become by God's grace through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He gives us two very familiar metaphors of who are his followers. He says they are salt and they are light. I don't know how many of you have read Fox's book of martyrs where John Fox, he tells of the sufferings of faithful Christians throughout the ages. And it's just literally a book full of martyrs testifying to the mercy and grace of God. Describing one particular faithful English Christian, John Fox wrote this. He was a good salt of the earth, savorly biting the corrupt manners of evil men. A light in God's house set upon a candlestick for all good men to imitate and follow. Dr. Roland Taylor, who the author describes or declares was so good at pointing to Christ, was burned as a martyr on February 9th, 1555. In the same book, a later story tells of two Christian friends who are tied up to the stake, back to back. Their names were Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. When the lighted stick was laid at Ridley's feet, the account says that it cost his friend Latimer to say, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. And so the two men died as martyrs on October 16th, 1555. Yet, even in their death, they hoped to proclaim the light of Christ. To see our context this morning, I want to invite you to read, beginning with verse 1 again, chapter 5. We'll read all the way through verse 16. So Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 16. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's our passage. For you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of the greatest problems that we have in the Christian church today unlike some of the previous generations, is one of not realizing who we really are. And because of that, we have neglected to take our Christian responsibility seriously. And this, I believe, is the heart of verses 13 through 16. You see, in verse 1, the crowds have gathered, and they're all looking at Jesus. And in verse 12 or verse 11, rather, Jesus then turns to his disciples and directly addresses them. And he says, you, you, he looks at them and he has a word for them. You will be persecuted because you are the salt and you are the light. I mean, think about this. Have you ever wondered why Jesus allows you to live today? Not because you have family, your kids to take care of, maybe your older parents or or you have some other things, but why does Christ allow me to live today? How often do you think about his purposes for you? Because when you do, his purposes for you will shape your purposes. And in these verses, Jesus here describes the nature and purpose of discipleship. Why are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? So if you're a disciple, a a follower of Jesus, you need to listen up to what Jesus will say here in verses 13 through 16. As we think about the theme and just the overall message of these verses, I want to submit to you this. The disciples of Christ must display Christ so that the hostile world might glorify the Father. The message here is very simple. The disciples of Christ ought to display Christ so that the purpose is that the hostile world might glorify the Father. In these verses, he makes two metaphorical statements about the nature of discipleship. And then he draws a conclusion. So first, Jesus says that as salt, his disciples, they maintain a distinct identity. Disciples of Jesus 
maintain a distinct identity. And second, as light, they reflect his light. So you maintain a unique identity and then you reflect his light. And then in verse 16, then Jesus draws upon these two metaphors and he concludes with the purpose statement, instructing his disciples to carry on his mission. And in essence says, be what you are. Very simple. Here's who you are. And then verse 16 says, be what you are. That's it. So I want us to consider these three points this morning. Number one, look at verse 13. As salt, Christ's disciples maintain a distinct identity. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, over the course of biblical interpretation spanning thousands of years, numerous explanations of the meaning of salt have been offered. Some say that salt was used to season and taste. Others say it was used as preservative. Another group says that it was used as an irritant or to kill plant life. One commentator even offers 11 possible interpretation for salt and goes through the list and tells us how we now Christians ought to exhibit the same kind of characteristics. In 1982, James Latham published a 256 page volume book entitled the religious symbolism of salt. Okay. You can actually buy the book today on Amazon for $175. Okay. Um, it's actually a very valuable resources, according to many. And, and I'm really, truly thankful for men who devote their life to study one subject in depth to publish a 256-page book. So good stuff there. And, and I'm personally, personally enjoyed expanding my knowledge and understanding on the subject of salt this week. One thing I learned, for instance, that our English word salary salary. It comes from an ancient word meaning salt money, salt money, referring to the Roman soldier's allowance for purchase of salt. Because salt was a very valuable commodity, the Romans were often paid with salt. And therefore, someone who earns his pay even today is said to be worth his salt. He's not worth his salt. So Let's just fire him. I think in order for us to understand Christ's use of the terms salt and light here, we need to begin by looking at the Old Testament's use and to see how those images, to see how the application of the Old Testament, when Jesus pronounces the word, you are the salt, you are the light, may have triggered in the minds of his hearer the application and the understanding of these words. And by extension, how we are supposed to interpret them today. We need to see what salt and light is in the Bible first, and not how it appears to the world around us. Remember, this sermon is directly addressed to his disciples, the Jews. 
So whatever the image that Jesus uses here must be familiar to them from the Old Testament. But I want you to notice something. Look at verse 13 and look at verse 14. Notice the structure and pattern. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Both of these statements have the same grammatical form. And in fact, should be read as parallel statements. And Jesus wants us, I think, to consider them together. A Christian, a disciple of Christ, he is both salt and light, and they must be interpreted together. When we study the Old Testament, salt and light are both mentioned in God's relationship with his people, the nation of Israel. Both metaphors reveal some aspect of God's fellowship with them. I want you to read a couple of passages. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Leviticus 2.13, God instructed Israel that in order to maintain their fellowship with him, they were to include salt in every offering. Remember that the offerings of the Old Testament, they were giving to God's people to maintain relationship, to maintain fellowship. And he says, when you do that, make sure you salt all the grain offerings. And he says in Leviticus 2.13, every grain offering of yours Moreover, you shall salt or you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering with all your offerings. You shall offer salt. So salt was used, he says, in all the offerings. It it, it was important as a preservative, right? which made a natural symbol for the covenant. Covenant was supposed to be preserved. Fellowship was supposed to be preserved. And therefore, when you offer the sacrifice, you offer it with salt so that it came to known as a salt of the covenant, a salty covenant. So when those who follow Jesus in Matthew 5 heard the idea of salt, it's likely conjured up the, the idea of fellowship and relationship, love, covenant in the midst of those Jews. Another passage, Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, when addressing the portions which were supposed to be given to the priest, the Lord says the following, Numbers 18, 19, all the offerings of the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you covenant of salt. It, it speaks of covenants or agreements as binding and unbreakable. And in this verse here, the emphasis is on the permanence of this relationship that God intends to keep this covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. Salt then here seems to indicate preservation. It seems to indicate permanence of a relationship with God's people. So perhaps instead of picking one of the many ways the the salt was used in ancient world, the scripture points out that salt was used again and again in connection to God's relationship and fellowship with his people. There's one other passage that I want you to write down as I read Ezra chapter 4 verse 14. And um, it's another instructive reference to the salt. And Ezra 14 or 414 says, now, because we are in the service of the palace, 
And it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. And you're probably wondering, where is salt? Salt wasn't mentioned here. Well, in our NASB translation, New American Standard Bible, for whatever reason, they did not include the correct interpretation or, or translation. But the ESV, those of you who have ESV, it correctly translates this way. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace. Nasby says now because we are in the service of the palace. ESV says now because we eat the salt of the palace. Very interesting. Why? Because salt symbolized loyalty and commitment. In other words, those who ate the salt of the palace partook of this thing that was offered in the palace. They showed devotion. They showed commitment to the king of the palace. And so therefore they said, because we are committed to the king, it is not fitting for us to see him dishonored. And what does Jesus mean then when he tells his disciples that they are the salt of the earth? Salt of the earth. Go back to Matthew chapter five. Just like in the Old Testament, salt pointed to a special relationship with God, one of loyalty, one of commitment. Jesus here pronounces that by following him, his disciples enter into a special relationship with Jesus. Being salt is their new distinct identity as followers of Jesus. And because of their relationship with Jesus, all people of all the earth, not just the Jews, not just the selected clan, the nation of Israel, all people receive a new identity. They have this permanent relationship with Jesus Christ, fellowship with God, and therefore they're different, they're distinct. That is why he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, if the salt has become tasteless, this word for tasteless is foolish. Foolish. If the salt becomes foolish, same exact word. Many commentators observe that Jesus used an Aramaic term to convey both meanings. The loss of taste and becoming foolish. And then when Matthew wrote it, remember Matthew, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, Matthew represented this by this Greek term from which we get the word moron, moronic, fool. And so Jesus says here, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt becomes foolish, foolish, if the salt here, meaning if the people of God become foolish, how? By abandoning their relationship with him. Or if the disciples of Christ do not persevere and preserve and maintain this distinct character, they are no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Wow. It's a strong language that he uses here. Does that ring a bell, church? Isn't this exactly what happened to the chosen nation of Israel? The chosen nation could not keep their end of the deal because of their weakness in flesh. They broke the covenant with God and lost their distinct identity as God people so that they were what? Exiled into the enemy territory and they were in effect trampled underfoot by men. 
And so in this message to his disciples is a message of condemnation in one sense. You are not the salt apart from Christ. You cannot remain. You cannot persevere. You don't have the new identity apart from Christ granting that and including you in his family. The nation as a whole, Israel, including its leaders, they have become tasteless. They are no longer good for anything and they can't reverse that. You cannot make a leech salt salty again. Remember what John the Baptist admonished the people in, in chapter three of those who try to come in and try to make a show of trying to be included in God's kingdom and Christ's kingdom without going through the necessary repentance and faith. And he said, you don't have entrance simply based on your blood, on your allegiance to Abraham. You need to go another route. You need to do something else. You need to see your need for Jesus because you are salt of the earth only in him. And as Jesus comes on the scene to establish this new and everlasting covenant with his blood, of which we read later on in Matthew 26, he purifies his people. He gives them a new identity and he enables them to keep their saltiness in their relationship with him. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's identifying his disciples as those who possess a distinct identity. There are Christians, they are those who belong to Christ and who retain the saltiness, not because they have the ability in and of themselves, but because Christ is in them by his spirit enabling them. And as a result, they are useful for something. The whole idea is of, of verse 13, you are something and therefore you are useful for something. You are something in Christ. And you are useful for something because of Jesus Christ. And that's why again and again, the repeated theme of the Sermon on the Mount is you and I need Jesus. You and I need Jesus. We cannot make it apart from Christ. James Latham in that fat book says this, our saltiness is guaranteed by what Christ has done and our saltiness is designed by God to lead others to thirst for his righteousness and to come into Christ's kingdom. So as salt, Christ's disciples, they maintain their identity and so remain useful in his kingdom. And this is the point of this passage this morning. You know, the beatitude gave us a beautiful description of who we are in Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that the beatitude, they do not describe of, of who we need to become, but who we have become by God's grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in verse 10, 11, and 12, they also conclude, the beatitudes conclude with a sobering reminder that, listen, if you look anything like Jesus, you will be persecuted. If you identify with Christ and if you walk with Christ, you will be persecuted. These verses, 13 through 16, however, they give us great hope 
that those who maintain their identity with Christ and walk with Christ, they actually are useful in his kingdom to lead others to Jesus, to lead others to Christ. Why? Because of their distinctiveness from the world. They are different. They are set apart. So as the world sees us, the disciples of Christ who please him, verse 16 says that they glorify father. They glorify God. But to further see how we accomplish this, we need to look at the second metaphor, and that is light. And see how it relates to the same theme of Christ's relationship with his people. Verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. You know, the Old Testament has a lot to say about light, just like the New Testament. Now, if you've been following along through our study here, through the Gospel of Matthew, I've been pointing out how often Matthew quotes the Old Testament and Isaiah in particular. And even though Jesus here in our passage doesn't quote the Old Testament, the metaphors and the pictures have a great Old Testament significance to his original readers. And therefore, they must have that same significance to us. I want you to go to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 And we'll begin reading with verse 3, and then we'll skip down to verse 5 and 6. Isaiah 49, verse 3, God, through Isaiah, says this. He said to me, Isaiah 49, verse 3, He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. You are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory and skip down to verse five. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel I will, notice, make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. I will make you, he says, a light to the nations. Okay, very important. So here we see God's servant initially identified as Israel was supposed to be the light, supposed to be the light to the nations to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what what Mike read in, in Isaiah or in Psalms 96. The nation of Israel was supposed to sing to the Lord, was supposed to sing about the Lord, was supposed to bless his name, was supposed to ascribe to him glory so that at the end of this psalm, the entire earth And heaven would rejoice and be glad. Every nation will hear about the mighty works of our God and praise and worship him. But hold your place in Isaiah and go back to Matthew, to our passage here and look at chapter four. Matthew chapter four. And let's remind ourselves of the condition of this nation right now. Check this out, verse 16. The people who were sitting in darkness 
So you were supposed to be the light to the dark places, to the dark nations, but now you are sitting in darkness. And, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, they're not the light. The nation of Israel is not the light. They can't bear the light. So what is going on? Well, we know that God's servant, the servant of Isaiah is later identified as the king. In fact, he's identified as the king here in Isaiah 49. And this king will be the light and he will come to the world to bring the light. And that is what the rest of this quote from Isaiah 9 is all about in Matthew 4. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Where did this light come from? Jesus in Galilee. When Jesus became incarnate and started his ministry to proclaim, verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. This is when the great light began to shine on his people. John 1, 9 says this, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Who is that? Jesus Christ. John 1, 1. John 8, 12, Jesus later on in the thick of his ministry, he testifies about himself and says this in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But if you're in Matthew 5, 14, look at the text again and look what it says. You are the light of the world. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. More specifically, he says, y'all, you all are the light. It's a plural pronoun, and I think it's very instructive here. He's not just addressing us as little Christians, individual Christians. He's addressing us as a group, as those who follow Christ together. And the same is true of salt. Y'all are salt. Y'all are light. So how do we make sense of all of this? Remember during our summer series, we studied the union of Christ. Union of Christ. And we said over and over and over again that because of our union with Christ, because of our ID, we identify, identification with Jesus Christ. All that is true of Jesus is true of you. All that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. So if Jesus is the light of the world, all those who have placed their faith in him, those who have become his disciples become reflection of his light. And as the head of this new relationship, as the head of this new covenant, which he inaugurated with his blood, which he sealed with his blood, Jesus invites us to come in and to enjoy the benefits which he secured for us. So church, isn't that amazing? We're not called to produce light. We're not called to generate and find this light. This is just a statement of fact. This is who you are 
in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So if you've trusted Christ, this is true of you, brother and sister. If you've not trusted Christ, then this is not true of you, but can become true of you when you come to believe in Jesus. Listen, as Christian, no longer are you to walk in darkness because you are light. No longer are you to hide your sin or, or to justify it or, or to do something yourself to try to get rid of it. No, you have a savior. Church, we have a savior who died for us and is now in heaven intercedes for us. Jesus is your defender, friend, because you're in him. Are you not amazed at his mercy? No longer do you need to produce your own light and your own righteousness by your power, friend. In Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who, who sanctifies you entirely, who cleanses you from sin, who teaches you to hate that sin and, and causes you to love God's righteousness. Look at the context. The light that the disciples of Christ enjoy and reflect is the light of, Christ, of righteousness. It is this moral, it is this ethical light. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, Apostle Paul writes this, For you were formerly darkness, before, before you placed your faith in Christ, but now you are light in the Lord. Very important, light in the Lord, because of the Lord, in your union with Jesus, you are light. And then the command, so this is who you are, this is what happened to you, and then the command, walk. Walk as children of light. No longer darkness. You are the light. Walk as children of light. Church, again and again, the theme sounds loud and clear. You need Jesus, the light, to be the light, to reflect the light. Apart from Christ, you cannot make it. You might pretend you have it all. You might even look to compete with Christ in his plan like the Pharisees did. But listen, you're just not strong. You're not big enough to succeed. You're not smart enough. Friend, the God of the universe came down in the person of Jesus and died for our sins. And he invites us to come into his kingdom and gives us his identity as his disciples to be the salt of the earth and light of the world. Together as a Christian community, we're, we're called to live holy lives as we receive and reflect God's light in the world. How specifically are we to do this? Well, remember, we oftentimes tempted to divorce verses 13 through 16 from the previous context, but we need to plug them back in. We need to read these verses with the view and the overall context of beatitudes. And they illustrate how, how those who are approved by God walk before God and with one another. How do they walk before God? They walk before God with humility. How do they walk before one another in mercy? This is the way of Christ. This is the way of Christ. Notice in verses 
14 and 15, Jesus says, for a person who is salt and light, who is identified as belonging to Jesus Christ, it is impossible for him not to shine. It is impossible not to radiate the divine kindness and mercy that they have discovered in Jesus Christ. Just as it is impossible to build a city on the hill that is hidden or to light a lamp to give darkness. When you light a lamp, it gives off light. So we must recognize that we are light in Christ and let that light shine into darkness. Disciples of of Christ, they display Christ. You are a lamp for a purpose. Jesus, friend, lit you up for a reason. Shine the light. Craig Keener, he says, a disciple whose life reveals none of the Father's works is like invisible light for vision, useless. As followers of Christ, we must see to it that the gospel, the good news of God's mercy, shines through us in the darkness. Now, our verses here, still being part of the introduction to the sermon, illustrate the nature and purpose of Christ's disciples. And consider this, what he says. You and I, friend, you and I, we're not the center of attention to be put on display so that people applaud us. It's not what he says here. Rather, we are to live as children of light whose lives reflect and point to Jesus so that as people watch us, they will bypassing us go straight to the father. Okay. So we are not the center of attention. We're not shining to be the light and be applauded by the world. So if no one applauds you, great, you're, you fit right in. In fact, the world says that if you, or the Bible says that if you look anything like Christ, they will never applaud you. They will persecute you. But here's the thing. In this persecution, God has other people around who are watching. And they're watching you. And God uses the light that you reflect, the light of Christ, to point to him. And so people, in looking at you, they bypass you and glorify Jesus. Glorify specifically the Father who is in heaven. So as light, Christ's disciples receive and retain their distinct identity. And as, or as salt rather. And as light, Christ's disciples, they reflect his light. Finally, he says in verse 16, therefore. So he concludes all of that. Therefore, Christ's disciples, be what y'all are. Be what you all are. Look at verse 13 through 15 again. There are no commands here. Jesus never commanded us to be the salt. He doesn't say that. It's just you are the salt. In verse 14, he says, you are the light. This is who you are. This is who you became in Christ and only in Christ. Apart from Christ, this is not true of you. So the the listeners, the crowds who are sitting there and analyzing themselves, they're getting Christ's point that, I need him in order to be something that he's calling me to be. But Jesus follows up this command in verse 16, right? With a command. And and in essence, he says, be what you are. 
Shine your borrowed light, Christian. Shine your borrowed light. Look again at the pronouns. They're all plural. So you can circle them in verse 13. You are plural. Congregation. Not individuals, but congregation. You are salt. Verse 14, you are light. Verse 16, let your light, all of your light, as a group shine before men. Um, that they may see your, again, plural, all of your good works, and they may glorify your father who is in heaven. I think this is intentional and this serves a purpose. The metaphor of a city might have something to do with this. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be a community of salt and light, not just individuals. Obviously, a community is made up of individuals, but the point here is, Listen, a group, a church, this local church is the light to the world. That local church across the street is the light to the world. The other church, we are all corporate groups that shine and reflect Jesus Christ to this dark world. And we shine the brightest when we're in the congregation of disciples. Right? As followers of Jesus, we're called to be community, not just these individual salt packets. You know, when you go to, I don't know, in and out go to in and out and they always include salt packet with your fries and rightly so sometimes two. Okay. Unseasoned fries is the worst thing in the world. And so they put that. Thank you. They put that there for you to salt, but that's not the point here. The point here is acres and acres of salt. I don't know if you've ever been to San Diego. We go with our family every once in a while on vacation there during summer, a couple of years back. We stay there. There is a factory, salt factory, South Bay Salt Works. And so a few of us, I think Alex was with me the other time. We took our bikes and we just biked uh, South um, San Diego and we, we just stumbled upon this factory and listened Salt factory, acres and acres of just fields and looks like snow-covered field. And it's all salt that's being harvested from the ocean. And, and you can't miss it. Why? Because even with our, with our dark sunglasses, it was hard to look at. Because it was a sunny day and it was just reflecting that light as bright as it, as it could ever reflect. There were John Deere, huge, huge uh, excavators. It wasn't just a guy with a shovel. Excavators moving piles and piles of salt. And I think this is what, what Jesus means here when he says, man, it's, it takes a community. It takes a church to do this kind of work, to shine the light of Christ the brightest. So when Grace Hill Church walks in love, walks in mercy and holiness, we display the grace and goodness of our Heavenly Father. And that is what often opens the eyes of the dying world to see and behold Jesus. The opposite is true also. When we don't love, when we don't show mercy when we bicker and complain and, and flat out sin and act like the world. 
There's nothing that attracts the world to that. They are the world. Welcome home. You look just like them. We may look just like them. The work of the Spirit of Christ is missing in our midst. So what do we do? Jesus says, shine your borrowed light. Walk in the light. Reflect Jesus. Display Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. I read this passage already, but if you were going to read on, it says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And look at this. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And and church, this is precisely why they are persecuted And why they're having all kinds of evil things spoken against them. When you walk in humility before God and mercy towards others, you will not just participate in the dark deeds of the world. But you will expose them. And because of that, you will feel heat. But don't let that deter you from being salt and light. Lead others to the light. I want you to notice something in verse 16. He says, let your light shine where? At home? In your bedroom? It should. Let your light shine there. Here? Absolutely. But look what it says here. Let your light shine before men. Before men. Listen, don't let the threat of opposition drive you into the wilderness, so to speak. Don't become a Christian hermit who's isolated from the world in fear of becoming like the world or or not being welcomed by the world. Jesus says, shine your light before men. Be around them. Be exposed to them. Be what y'all are. Get out of your house. Go meet some neighbors. Go play and go pray where there are unbelievers. Extend grace when you can exact judgment from the unbeliever. And this will testify that you are different, that we as a congregation are different. I like how Bonhoeffer puts it, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. The community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And consider this, the closest some of your acquaintance will get to know Jesus What Jesus is like is by looking at you. You bring Jesus to them. I want you to notice something, however, that flip a page to uh, Matthew 6, 1. Look at what Matthew 6, 1 says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Interesting. Interesting, right? He says here, you uh, let your light shine before men. And then in verse 6, he he warns them, be careful. Be careful. To practice your righteousness before men. What's the difference? I think the difference is one group of disciples reflects Christ and leads others to the light so that they may worship God, the Father. The other group of Pharisees, they want to show off their own righteousness. They want to show off their dirty rags so that people might notice them and what? worship them. Wow, what a, what a brother, what a sister. Amazing. 
Jesus says, you know what? Y'all got your reward in full. That's your reward in full. Christians desire Christ to be seen in them. It says, so that when they see your good works, what are these? You know, your good works is Christ in you. The good deeds which the Spirit enables you to perform for the glory of God, there are actions that God commands us to do in his word that are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. They are what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, good works prepare for us in Christ. And what is the motivation? In verse 16, I want him to glorify my Father. That's the motivation. In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter writes to those who are persecuted for Christ, and he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, you're being persecuted. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Church, let me ask you this at the end. Are we living for ourselves or are we living with our identity with Christ? Do you wonder today why Jesus allows you to live? Why do you remain? Do God's purposes in Christ shape your purpose for your life? Because this is God's purpose. Friends, as those who have received grace and are part of Christ's kingdom Do we live out our unique Christian identity that we have received from Jesus? I just want to remind you, we are redeemed by the Son. We are brought into his kingdom, and we ought to walk as salt and light. Oh, may God be gracious to us so that we would be that church that community that walks together and shines the light to one another and to the world for sole purpose, not so that we get a newer and bigger and shinier building. No. So that people would see and they would come and worship God. God, because of the good works which he is producing in us. Father, we thank you. Pray that you would confirm these words in our hearts. And may we go from here as salt and light and reflect Jesus in all that we do. Many have suffered, many have died being that salt and light. And I pray that we would not be deterred, that we would be before men and that you would save those men and women and bring them into your kingdom. We thank you for making us salt and light. May we do what we are. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.